Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, right to reply, Yorkist Queens. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello. And uh, welcome to Rex Factor, where today we are not reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, but we are talking about them. Uh, for the second time, we are doing a Right to Reply episode. Uh, as we're now doing a bunch of episodes in a mini-series, mini we thought it would be good to reflect back on the ones that we've just done before moving on to the next lot. So, having recently completed our review of the Yorkist Queens, we thought... Right to Reply, Bly. <laughs> Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. Uh, and now is if you're listening to this late and you still want to comment on the Yorkist Queens, we still read out uh, messages from long ago times. So there's an yeah. avenue for that as well. Which is fortunate because I have just logged back into Facebook successfully. <laughs> And there's an awful lot to be caught up on. Uh, yeah. Uh, although there might not be so many messages on the Yorkist Queens, because I don't think you've been logged into Facebook since we've released any of those episodes. No. <laughs> no. So this, so, will, be yes. the first epi- this yeah. will be the first episode in quite some time that has been promoted on Facebook. Oh, uh, yeah. must remember to do that. <laughs> Uh, also a reminder that if you'd like to hear more of us, you can join the Privy Council by uh, supporting us on a monthly basis uh, on uh, patreon.com forward slash rexfactor, and you get access to nearly 150 bonus podcasts. Wow. Hmm. Uh, anyway, before we have a look at your thoughts on the Yorkist Queens, let's have a reminder for ourselves, or at the very least, Ali, on uh, who they all were. Recap. So, there were three Yorkist Queens consorts. Uh, oh, can you name them? I was just about to, I was just trying to do that in my head. Um, okay, so the first one is going to be uh, the. Um, I don't think I can do this, <laughs> but I think I think that started full of confidence. Well, I've got the first one. Um. <laughs> no, but I was thinking it's the uh, it. She is the wife of uh, the fellow who was put to sleep, and then I thought I can't even remember his name. And I thought it's bad that I'm trying to define her by a man whose name I can't remember. And then I realised that we're recording a podcast and I should say something. Uh, so, yeah. that that Am I right? Was, no, that was the last of the Lancastrians oh, that you're trying to remember, Margaret of Anjou, who was married to Henry VI. Well, who, <laughs> who, is it? who was the first one then? You are the one uh, who came after and put Henry VI to sleep, uh, which was the first of the Yorkist kings and, of course, the first of the Yorkist queens. King Edward IV, Fourths, who was married to... Elizabeth Woodville. Yes! She was the first one. First one in this little mini-series of Yorkist consorts. Oh, it's confusing because obviously the Lancastrians and Yorkists, particularly Margaret of Anjou, there's overlap. Mm. Uh, then we have Anne Neville, Queen Consort to Richard III. And finally, Elizabeth of York, who was Queen Consort to Henry VII. So technically the first of the Tudor consorts, but equally she was the only one who was uh. actually of York. So... Yeah, yeah, and that confused me because uh, the big hitter of um, Elizabeth Woodville mm. is there all the way through. It's not like this. Yes, mm. yeah. Uh, so we'll do a little recap for uh, each of those, just to remind ourselves about uh, who they were and uh, what they got up to. Uh, Elizabeth Woodville, as you were saying, is the most notable um, uh, of the three, probably in terms of her fame, and indeed she was her first English consort since 1066. 
That's a long time, isn't it? Did you tell me that at the time? Mm, I did, yes. Because <laughs> that's a long time, isn't it? Did you tell me that at the time? time. <laughs> Four, 400 years since there'd been an English consort. It's very odd. Mm. Uh, and she was a controversial choice as consort, partly because she was English and thus it meant you didn't get a foreign alliance, which was seen as one of the benefits of uh, the king marrying, but also because her father was not of the nobility, though her mother was, and she was the widow of a Lancastrian soldier, uh, and Edward IV, her husband, of course, uh, a Yorkist. Uh, indeed, she secures yeah. her Yorkist second husband, Edward IV, in a famous scene under an oak tree where she was petitioning him to settle a property dispute, but uh, he fell in love with her, and they married. Yeah. Um, but what was the thing we were talking about just before that you said something? What was the point we made before? English. English, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh is, if it wasn't for the fact that of this story that you just said about him falling in love under the tree and all that, hmm. it'd be tempting to say that it's is an English queen a symptom of civil war, where you're sort of trying to heal divisions. But it was did just seem to be a total random thing. Just fancied her. I suppose that's fine, isn't it? Because Henry the Seventh, as we see, Henry Elizabeth of York uh, and Henry the Seventh, that marriage is very much a healing the divisions and civil war. And even Which though, one was that? Uh, well, that's that's the one that we're going to talk about in uh, <laughs> about two minutes' time. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, so that yeah, was yeah. The, the House of York, Hank of the House yeah. of Lancaster. So even though this marriage is the same, it's a Yorkist and Lancastrian. Don't really think it was actually in any way intended as a healing of the divisions. It is simply that Edward the Fourth falls for yeah. Elizabeth Woodfall and wants to marry her. Because she doesn't have that nobility. Mm. There. Uh, and indeed, they do it secretly, and when it's revealed, it causes an uproar, which leads to a breach between Edward and uh, the most powerful noble in the land, Warwick the Kingmaker. Uh, Warwick allies with the Lancastrians in a rebellion that sees Edward IV kicked off the throne, uh, and Elizabeth Woodville having to take sanctuary uh, in Westminster Abbey, where she gives birth mm. to her first son uh, by Edward. Thankfully, Edward returns and defeats Warwick, and the next decade is largely peaceful, until Edward's uh, premature death in 1483, which unleashes further chaos. Uh, there's a battle for the regency of Edward and Elizabeth's eldest son, Edward V, which ultimately sees Elizabeth going back into sanctuary, while Richard, Duke of Gloucester, brother of Edward IV, takes control, locks up both of her royal sons in the Tower of London, and takes the throne as Richard III. Uh, Elizabeth supported a rebellion to place Henry Tudor, the Lancastrian, on the throne, but when this failed, she agreed to send her daughters back to court. Uh, however, Richard is then defeated and killed at the Battle of Bosworth, so she herself returns to court when Henry Tudor, who is now Henry VII, is king and marries her eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York. Uh, at first, Elizabeth Woodville is treated with honour at Henry's court. She is godmother to Prince Arthur, his eldest son, uh, but she has a very sudden fall from grace uh, and is either sent off or simply retires uh, to a nunnery where she dies in 1492 at 55 years old, apparently largely impoverished, but uh, with her daughter, safely on the throne as Queen Consort. And this is where we get into that interest, those interesting time bridges, that he, he, she was godmother to King Henry's brother, and yet King Henry VIII, that is. Yes. And yet it's Elizabeth Woodville, for goodness godmother sake. Godmother and indeed grandmother. That's better, isn't it? Yeah, that's so she that's... is the grandmother to Prince Arthur. She is the grandmother to Henry VIII, who is born when she is still alive. And could, had plenty of legs left in her. Not, well, not, at te not well, technically or actually. Until the following but... year when she died. But... <laughs> <laughs> but there was possibility you wouldn't bet against her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, anyway, so that's uh, Elizabeth Woodfall. Next up was Anne Neville, who was the second daughter of Warwick, the kingmaker, and she grew up with her parents and uh, older sister Isabel, initially at the Calais garrison, where Warwick was captain, uh, before coming back to England after Edward IV uh, comes to the throne with Warwick's help. Uh, they all return to Calais, the family, when Warwick rebels against Edward, and uh, Isabel, her older sister, marries Edward's second brother, George, Duke of Clarence. There's a brief reconciliation between Warwick uh, and Edward, which sees Anne and the others come back to England, but Warwick and all of them are forced back into exile in 1470, and now it's Anne who makes the strategic family marriage, uh, this time to the only son of Margaret of Anjou, when we have a surprising alliance between Warwick and the previous Lancastrian queen, Margaret of Anjou, who had been such a bitter enemy of Warwick's. Mm. Uh, marriage doesn't last long, though, because Warwick is killed in the Battle of Barnet in 1471, and her new husband is killed just a few weeks later in the Battle of Tewkesbury, after which Anne finds herself in the household of her sister Isabel and her husband, the Duke of Clarence, until she is rescued by uh, the brother the other brother of Edward and uh, Clarence, which is Richard. So she marries him in 1472 and becomes uh -uh. the Duchess of Gloucester and seems to have lived predominantly in the north for the next decade until the death of Edward IV sees Richard take the throne as Richard III uh, and Anne Neville becomes Queen of England. Uh, unfortunately, though, her time as Queen wasn't very happy. Their only son uh, together died in 1484 and she herself was ill and seemed not to have been able to have any more children. Uh, and she died in March 1485, just 29 years old, with Richard hoping to find a new wife. A sorry tale. That was a sorry tale. Finally, we have Elizabeth of York, who is the eldest child of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Um, thus, of course, uh, a queen and... Uh, uh, sorry, a mother and daughter combo, both being queen consorts of England, which is the only time Ooh. that's happened. Oh, Rex, fact. Nice. Mm. Uh, her early years were marked by the struggle between her father and Warwick. She, of course, is with her mother in Sanctuary in 1470. After his restoration, she spends most of her youth preparing to be the Queen of France because uh, she's betrothed to the Dauphin. Uh, that's cancelled, though, in 1482. Following year, her father dies and she is back with her mother uh, in Sanctuary. 1484, however, uh, as we said, Elizabeth Woodville let her daughters return to court. So Elizabeth of York goes back to the court uh, under Richard III and there are rumours that Uncle Richard is planning to marry her, she being his niece. Mm, scandalous. Indeed. However, after Anne Neville died, Elizabeth of York was sent away from court, after which Richard is defeated and killed at Bosworth, and the new king, Henry VII, fulfils a pledge he had made years earlier uh, to marry her. So we have the uniting of the two houses of Lancaster and York when Henry VII and Elizabeth of York get married. Uh, so it's a political marriage, but they do actually seem to have been genuinely close. Elizabeth is a popular figure, and her status helps reconcile many people to the new Tudor dynasty. Uh, and they seemed all very well set. They had two sons and two daughters, but tragedy strikes when their eldest son, Arthur, died in 1502, just months after marrying uh, the Spanish infanta Catherine of Aragon. So Elizabeth gets pregnant again soon afterwards, hoping for another son. Uh, so they have an heir and a spare once more. But um, sadly, she falls ill after the birth and dies less than two weeks later on her 37th birthday in 1503. She had gas in the tank too. Yeah. <sighs> so before we get on to your messages, just a quick little summary and comparison of them. In terms of how we scored them, Elizabeth Woodville mm. was the top scorer with 64, which is uh, the seventh best of the 37 that we've reviewed in the series thus far. I sort of was expecting her to, uh, I don't know why, wipe the floor. Mm. But, and be sort of top five or possibly three, because she's such a big name. But, mm. Mm. oh well. Way off at seventh. 
could I mean if we're talking like Formula One differences here. You could need mm. to tweak for a hundredth of a second makes all the difference to that in those top spots. Yeah, dodgy pit stop and uh, <laughs> dodgy, dodgy pit stop in sanctuary. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you hover there too long, you're going to lose out. Exactly. Uh, she was the only one of the three to get the Rex Factor. Uh, Anne Neville was the lowest scoring with just 15.5, which is the 33rd of 37 that we've done Alpha thus far. Right down at the bottom. Uh, while Elizabeth of York scored 47.5, which is joint 14th. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, good showing. Now, something notable about these consorts was their nationality. So we said about Elizabeth of York being the first English consort since 1066, but then three in a row. Each one of them, English. Yeah, yeah. So 400 years without any, and then uh, three of them turn up. <laughs> is Now, is that a... That's got to be a symbol of reconciliation. Because it's the Ro- Yorkist Rose and everything. Uh, three well, in a row. Well, is it reconciliation, or is it... Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of accident, because obviously Richard of York marries Anne Neville without knowing that he's going to be king. Yeah. Henry the Seventh absolutely is reconciliation. Elizabeth Woodville, it's a yeah, it's a lovely. Gosh, one. okay, hang on. That Queen fact. What about Queen Mother and Queen? Yes, Queen Mother and Queen. So the only mother daughter to both be Queen Consort of England. Oh, so yeah, because the Queen isn't Queen Consort. Because mm. usually you would expect that if the daughter becomes queen, it would be queen regnant. Yeah. So something's gone a bit amiss. Yeah. yeah for both yeah, of them to have been consort. Mm. Just finding a bishop on a different square move. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also all had marriages across the uh, the dynastic divide. So as we said, Elizabeth Woodville was a Lancastrian when she marries the Yorkist king Edward the Fourth. Anne Neville's first husband was the son of Margaret of Anjou. So again a Yorkist Lancastrian, and indeed Anne Neville's second husband, Richard, might have had potentially a hand in the death of her first husband. Mm. Uh, and then Elizabeth of York helps end Wars of the Roses by marrying Henry Tudor, who's a Lancastrian figurehead. So in each case, we have them marrying someone on the other side. Ah, yeah, good point. Reconciliation. <laughs> That's, that is the theme of today. <laughs> we'll talk reconciliation. <laughs> Uh, all three women lived very dramatic lives with their fair share of upheavals and tragedies. Uh, Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Neville both married their kings after their first husband was killed in battle fighting for the other side. This is so weird. Uh, all three saw their eldest sons die before them. Uh, and they were also relatively short-lived themselves, as you said, yeah. uh, had legs. So Elizabeth Woodville was the oldest to die at 55, and she was the only one who survived her husband. Uh, Anne Neville was only about 28 or 29 when she died, and Elizabeth of York, as we said, died on her 37th birthday. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Funny set of circumstances repeating. Yeah. And obviously it's quite a contained period of history. It's said Anne Neville um, in the middle of the two of them, but also Elizabeth Woodville survives Anne Neville's queenship yeah. by quite a long way. Yeah. That's odd, isn't it? Mm. But also I think... It's probably fate just saving itself up for the absolute <laughs> chaos show that's coming next with Henry VIII. Finally, some stability and calm after yeah. the Wars of the Roses. Get ready. Keep your powder dry, because I'll tell you what's coming next. You won't believe it. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, that's where we will be going next. But for today, we're going to find out what you've been saying about the Yorkers consorts. First up, Elizabeth Woodville. So she's one of the big names of the series, but not everyone was fully on board uh, with Elizabeth Woodville getting the Rax Factor. Uh, Stuart Brandwood was uh, one person to uh, question that decision. He says, great episode. Unusually, I agree with your Rex Factor decision, but it was a close run thing. I think the endless power and money grabbing on behalf of her clan worked against her Rexiness. She was an immensely strong character, but aside from the initial gambit in the forest, do we have anything truly masterful when you compare her to an Eleanor of Aquitaine or a Margaret of Anjou? Yeah, no, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's disappointing. One, it's a dramatic life story, I guess, is her thing, isn't it? It's almost a bit a bit Mary Queen of Scots-ish. But she's got the personality as well. Mm. And so I can't see what's missing. It's just the... She's like... She just doesn't put the ball in the back of the net somehow. Yeah. But doesn't get... It's It's the weird thing where she's sort of... In a weird way, she's kind of on top at the end, but it doesn't feel like she is... Like yeah, the daughters on the yeah, throne. Yeah, think, yeah. Well, that's gone pretty well, really, given everything. Oh my goodness, she's Gareth Bale. <laughs> you've got all these Champion Leagues medals, and yet somehow it really feels like you've wasted the last ten yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. Oh my! Oh, that's helped me out massively. So, <laughs> if you're a fan of uh, European football, uh, that'll help. <laughs> uh, Maria Tranter was also sceptical. Uh, she says, I agreed with your rating and comments throughout the episode, but I'm not entirely sure about the Rex Factor. It felt a little as though you were giving it to her, partly because she is one of the ones we still know about and would expect to give it to. So yeah, like but I, we have yeah. to give it to her because she's Elizabeth Woodville. Yeah. Uh, and But if we weren't giving it to her, it'd be because she wasn't in the top five. But I think the mm. to, a top ten place and being Elizabeth Woodville is Rexy. I mean, so you'd give it to Gareth Bale. <laughs> it's one of those sort of chicken and egg things isn't it where on the one it's like she's elizabeth woodville because yeah. that obviously denotes a certain level of interest and significance mm. so on the one hand you shouldn't give it to someone just because they're famous but equally they're famous for a reason and yeah but i think yeah. i sort of know what you mean it's kind of this slight thing of thinking maybe you were going to get a bit more somehow but i think it is more the dramatic personal story rather than something she did as Queen. Do you don't think she should have got it? No, no, I do think she should have got it. That's why I said oh. yes. But I'm oh. saying I think it's... it's She gets it, I think, because of the incredible drama and story, mm. rather than something she did as Queen. She's actually quite yeah. a conventional Queen in many ways. Which is odd, because she seems so... Unconventional. Um, <laughs> unconventional at the start, and mm. f- uh, fiery and cool, and mm. all... Empress Maudie. Yeah. And then it's she just gets caught up in a terrible sequence of events dominated by horrible men, I guess. Mm. Um some were okay with her getting the Rex Factor, but had a few caveats. So uh, Jordan, for example, said I felt as though it wasn't quite a resounding yes, but still a yes. Her presence mm. and character was deserving, but in terms of actual achievements, slightly less exciting. Yes, actually, that's what we've just been saying, isn't it? That's probably why it was in my mind, because I put the notes together. <laughs> uh, Rob Finch wasn't sore about the scoring. So he said, obviously a well-deserved Rex actor, but way too generous on the subjectivity chaps. What did she actually do? 
So I gave, like, oh, this was Instagram, so I gave a few little examples. I said, you know, she patronised William Caxton for publishing, uh, printing press, etc. So she replied, Caxton Schmaxton. Printing would have spread to England, with or without him. Uh, three at best, I'd say. Something to that, isn't there? Hmm. I guess it was also that it felt like there was a significant period of time where things were pretty good, and she was overseeing a pretty good... Yeah. Course. And, and you know, someone... Someone had to invent a spoon. That's really so easy now. <laughs> but someone has to do invent it. a spoon now. <laughs> yeah, once you thought of it. But get that printing press over here. I think it's got a future. <laughs> someone had to do it, didn't they? Uh, Elizabeth Clark, however, thought she deserved a few more points. Should totally have given the points for being the mother of the next queen consort. Just because it's a one-off doesn't mean it shouldn't count. Yeah, didn't we do that? That's in Dynasty, yeah, so I didn't because we specify Dynasty as for legitimate surviving... Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Uh, Mm. Oh, well, no, you got... No, sorry, not Dynasty, dynasty, longevity. So it would have been Queen Mother of the Queen. So she got Queen Mother for Edward V, not for being the Queen Mother of the Queen Consort Elizabeth of York. It's got done on a technicality. got done on a technicality. Transfer a request rejected, I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't think it... I think I did calculate it in the episode, and I don't think it made a massive difference. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was fairly small, the difference, but you never know. when uh, If she slips out of the top ten by half a mark, then... And you'd have to go back and apply that to all the others that it applied well, I mean, to, and it well, just there doesn't. Aren't, there aren't Yeah, so <laughs> maybe that's... It's like a, a physical advantage that you mm. can't help for. Uh, however, some people are unashamedly in favour of her getting the Rex Factor. Jason Williams said, This was a well-deserved Rexy. This is a great era for consorts. Oh, that's positive. Mm. I think, yeah, this definitely is. I think the Wars of the Roses definitely is a favourite for a lot of people. The fact you've got Wars of the Roses and then, obviously, the Six Wives of Henry VIII is a, yeah. very, a time of really prominent, interesting mm. queens. Lots of dramatic stories. Uh, likewise, Jennifer Grandchamp says of Elizabeth, she's my favourite. Died in her bed while maintaining the perception of what a woman is supposed to be during this era. This Elizabeth Woodville? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, that, going quietly to a nunnery, it's not the same person who uh, <laughs> chatted up the king under a tree. No. Though I guess it is the person who's, you know, she's twice gone to sanctuary in an abbey. Oh, it's the, the familiar. Maybe she's just done it a few times to think, you know what, I just... Oh. It was easy in there. I mean, it was it was hard at the time, but now I look back on it, you know. Yeah. Oh, you can't re- can't repeat a holiday. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a holiday. I'm sorry. I'm sure it was horrible, degrading experience. <laughs> uh, now, Louise Brimacombe has issued a correction hey. for my oh. uh, suggestion that Elizabeth Woodfull marked the first consecutive Rex Factor of the series following on for Margaret of Anjou. Yeah. Uh, she's pointed out Matilda of Boulogne and Eleanor of Aquitaine were back-to-back Rex Factor winners in this series, I think. Who's hard Boulogne? To... Mm. Uh, Matilda of Boulogne, Stephen's wife. Oh, yeah, fair. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard to remember they were consecutive episodes because there wasn't the overlapping content that you frequently get. Yeah. She's sharp, isn't she, this Brimacombe? Mm. on it. And I was going to say it's also tricky because they were in different miniseries, but so were Margaret Vonge and Elizabeth Woodville. Yeah, I think probably there was quite there may, may have been a bigger gap between Matilda of Boulogne and Eleanor of Aquitaine because I needed a lot of time for Eleanor of Aquitaine. But yes, it's correct. That is the second consecutive Rex Factor of the series rather than the first. Do you feel um, 
admonished. I do, I do. Okay. Uh, Louise has also posed a question to uh, consider from this miniseries. She says, lots of recent episodes from this series and previous miniseries have got me thinking about this. Imagine you're a medieval or early modern European ruler. You've had a successful reign, but sadly you are now dying of some gruesome illness or injury. Unfortunately, your eldest son is still only ten. It's time to write your will. Who do you nominate to rule on behalf of your son until he is old enough to rule in his own right? Your wife, the boy's mother, or a council of the boy's uncles, your brothers and or your wives, or some other setup? And why? God, that's quite a, that's quite a responsibility. Mm. I'm not sure I should um I should be I should be in charge to be. I'm honest. not sure how I've ended up in this position in the <laughs> first place. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Well, I'd be tempted to dabble in uh yeah, some form of council, mm. but it really goes well. Mm. There'd be a dominant character that I'd hope would be the mother. Uh is this a question like actually my like my brother and using the mother of my children? I guess or it's open. This... I guess that's open to how you have what you oh, want to gosh. ask. Uh, maybe it'd be better if you go theoretical. Is there a parliament at this stage? Yes, but it's not. Um... Give that a bit more power. <laughs> the nobles will love that. Yeah, all right, be, guys. These, it. you know, these com- the thing where the commoners come along and moan about stuff. I'm going to give them loads of executive power now and put them in charge of the regency oh, for the next ten was? years. You're all right with that? Well, I'm dead anyway, so don't tell me. Tell <laughs> <you>. <laughs> what? What about no? Like the council of the nobles, those fellows? Is there? Mm. They don't ever gather. And have a little oh yeah, yeah. Like? Well, the privy, the privy council. There you go. What a noble bunch. I've never met such a lovely group of people as the Privy Council. But what if somebody is, you know, inevitably somebody, as you said, is going to try and be more equal than the rest? So do you appoint, do you lean into that and just think this guy's going to take control anyway, so might as well let him? Or do you think, no? What does that big horse do on Animal Farm? (laughs) I think he, he he was the nice one, wasn't he, when it came to these sort of decisions? Didn't end well, I did it. No. Didn't he get mangled to death in a mill or something? Uh, I can't remember the method. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> but I, I think, um, no, all right, I would definitely sort the Privy Councillors out, yeah. And then if it got to a... There always is someone who rises to the top who just does sort the admin out better than everyone else. Mm. I'm all right with that, as long as the executive power lies in a in a vote. Just uh, that's now out there on public record as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Me, presume you just give give, give Alex all of Alex's um, <laughs> health and security into my care. Yeah, and the other one. To do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tricky because it feels like it's, it's a weird one. Where in France, the Queen often does get this position, whereas in England they don't. And mm. I don't know if that's because in France they. Feels that well, they ultimately they have the Salic law, but they have this sort of set up even before Salic law. But where there's maybe more of a sense of obviously the queen isn't going to get to be properly queen ever, so it's fine for them to be pretend queen. Oh, that's good. Whereas maybe in that's this country, safer. it feels a bit more like, mm, don't know about you being queen. Yeah, we're so open to the possibility of you being queen that we're going to have to absolutely make sure that this <laughs> never ever happens. Be queen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
It's always better that they acknowledge that this will never happen. So this is totally fine. And then just chip a, oh, I don't know, I'm in dangerous territory here, isn't mm. it? It's tricky. On the one hand, I think, yeah, it feels like the Queen should be the natural choice because the most loyal to the son mm. and also not a dynastic threat in any way. Very true. Uh, but, you know, you could see equally with the, with the Edward IV situation where you think well, the Woodvilles, people aren't sure about them, maybe get my trusty brother on the scene. He'll just sort stuff out. Yeah, you need to have good relations the entire time. So it's just like an uncle and the, your mother being cordial and not trying to kill you is the norm. That's the ideal, isn't it? Mm. Henry Let's VIII, for his will, he kind of basically specifies there's not going to be a a protector or regent. It will be a council in which no one will dominate. Yes, good man. But inevitably, uh, somebody does. Who's that? Which one? Uh, Somerset, the Duke of Somerset, who's the uncle, older uncle of Edward VI. Oh, right. And then he gets nobbled, and then someone else takes over. Does he? Gets mm. hit, like... Okay. That's the danger, isn't it? Then the other people start getting nobbled. Yeah, too much nobbling goes on. Yeah. So she should try Queen. Try Queen and stop... You know, we can nobble this nobbling. <laughs> uh, Jacob Matthews has a fascinating non-fact Rex fact. Uh. Uh, it says, When I lived in Cambridge, I remember... I remember being told it's spelled Queen's College, with the apostrophe after the S, i.e. plural, Queen's, mm. in acknowledgement of the fact that it was founded by two queens. So this is where Elizabeth of, oh. uh, Elizabeth Woodville was given the kind of credit as like a second founder, but actually Margaret of Anjou set it up. Yeah. So he's suggesting actually it was, it was saying acknowledging this is multiple Queen's college. Oh, that's a very important apostrophe, isn't it? Uh, he then says, turns out this is probably not true, but it's a good oh. factoid to introduce the history when taking someone punting. Ah, oh, I'd already forgotten you told me it was not true. <laughs> and I will forget again. I'm going to tell someone that fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chelsea Malkin poses a rhetorical question that we may choose to answer anyway. I was waiting and checking my podcast every single day for this. She is my favourite medieval queen. I often wonder what would have happened is that if Elizabeth of York was a boy and how we would remember Richard III. So what she means there is when Edward IV died in 1483, Elizabeth of York was 17. So if she had been Edward of York, mm. then mm. wouldn't have had a regency. He would definitely have been king. Can't imagine... Richard the mm. Third, or Richard being Richard the Third, and having done any of that business, any attempt to say, "Oh, this marriage wasn't legit," you'd have a basically pretty. Well, he'd be nobbled. Yeah, or he'd be nobbled. Yeah, Uncle Richard would just be dispatched. Mm, or indeed, he wouldn't need to be dispatched, and he'd just be uh, up there in the north, being a good old loyal, faithful. Yeah, he'd Uncle have been happy Dickie. with that as well. Mm. What a good point. Mm. And again, that's the um, the Henry VIII obsession. Yeah, no, we'd still be Catholic. Mm. Or, you know... No, but, uh, that's in, but Henry's issue, you know, his obsession with a male heir and that he doesn't have the hindsight to know how successful Elizabeth will be and he thinks, look what happens. First one was a girl rather than a boy. They'd been the other way round. Oh, oh I see. Happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he's looking back to. 
because it's so recent. Mm. Who? So what's that? That's his uncle who's been. Uh, yes, yes. The princes in the tower are Henry VIII's uncles. That feels like a Rex fact, but that's been known the whole time. <laughs> yeah, so he's thinking, if my uncles were boys... If... Oh, hang on. If my, what do I mean? If my mother was my uncle, then she'd still be king today, and I would never have been born. Is that where I was heading to? I think so. Oh, crikey. Good, <laughs> good job you stopped me in my tracks. I have no idea what that meant. Uh, we mused on why it was that Elizabeth Woodfall has that very sharp uh, fall from grace in the reign of Henry VII, and Prime McMaster's has uh, a theory. He says, perhaps this is a carrying forward of the social convention that there can only be one powerful queen at a time, from oh, all the way yeah. back in Saxon times. Yeah. I forgot about that. So we've got Elizabeth of York, her daughter as queen, Elizabeth Woodfall being there. Maybe it's just like, you know what? Yeah, that's really have true. both of you. Yeah, that always happens, doesn't it? Hmm. Certainly true with Henry VIII. He starts lopping the heads off. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was very keen on a, a distinct yeah. break from one to yeah. another. Uh, in reference to the notion that Elizabeth Woodville had a connection to a pagan tradition of orgies under an oak tree. Oh, yeah. Uh, Monkey Grinder suggested, I've learnt the real reason why Charles II was up that oak tree. <laughs> <laughs> that is a Rex gag. <laughs> Uh, e spoke for many in picking up on uh, um, this quote from you, Ali, from the episode. You said, yeah. she must have been as familiar with grief as I am with water slides. And uh, her question is, now I want to know more about Ali's relationship with water slides. Good God. I'm sorry. The <laughs> stuff that you have to wade through and you get some semi-decent content out of it. I've no idea. <laughs> Have you I've been mean, on I'm, many water slides. I mean, the implication was that you've been on quite a lot of water slides. Does that mean that? Because she had a lot of grief. Yes. Yeah, that must have been what I meant. Unless it wasn't that you'd been on a remarkable number, and you were just very literally saying she's had more grief than I've been on water slides, and that wasn't actually quite as profound a point as it may have come across as. And I just want to go on more water slides. Because hmm. that bit is definitely true. I told you I went all the way around the world trying to find a water slide. <laughs> and each time back kept telling me, wait, they'll be better in California. They'll be better in California. Got to California. Blooming closed. <sighs> so they have to stick with blooming billing aquadrome. <laughs> well, I hope that answers your question, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, for Elizabeth Woodville, John Easter has written a limerick. Hey. It really scandalised folk when Elizabeth enchanted her bloke. To some it was tragic, others said it was magic and pointed the blame at the oak. <laughs> That's very good. He's got talent. <laughs> like that. Ah. Uh, and we will move on to Anne Neville after a quick break. Anne Neville. Uh, Anne Neville is probably not one of the consorts who's going to have the, the biggest of uh, fan clubs at the end of the series, but she's a local legend for some. So uh, mm -hmm. Mr. O'Keefe from Linden School told us, we have been uh, very much looking forward to Anne Neville's episode after taking Year 7 just up the road to Warwick Castle two weeks ago. Huh. Graham's summary at the end of the episode, less a queen and more a pawn, is a wonderful summary. Yeah, he's eloquent, our Graham. 
Unsurprisingly, a lot of people have focused on the lack of available information for Anne. Uh, Kinnethrith said, Anne is such a tragic figure. Used as a pawn by her father, loses her only child, publicly humiliated by her husband, dies young. And even her biographer doesn't think she's worth her time. Ugh. I'd like to think that her full story is very interesting, if only we could find it. We have, haven't we? Well, it's the lack of details and... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That sort of thing. Yes, I mean, we do know of her Hmm. existence in the major... Phew. Milestones. Uh, Erica Salazar will be getting the time machine out for Anne. Uh, Anne Neville will be the person you'd love to sit down with a cup of tea and have tell you the stories of all the things that she saw happen, but she did very little to make those things happen. Mm, she's the she's royal fly on the wall. Mm. Uh, Elsie Clark has a theory on the lack of information. She says, I was wondering, is one of the reasons there is so little info on her due to the post-Ricardian slander of the Tudor era? Might some records have been erased or suppressed in order to bolster Henry VII's power? Even mundane info surrounding the circumstances of her son's birth and her doings as a duchess might have led people to think more favourably of the Yorkers' past, or a potential revival than Henry would have wanted. Or maybe she really wasn't of interest to anyone. Hmm... Just rob them of any detail and then they lose their power. Though I fear, to be honest, it is probably more the latter than the former. Mm. I think maybe it's it's more, it's less that I suspect that the Tudor court went around suppressing positive news stories about Anne Neville, but maybe more that they had no motivation to write any. There was no one around mm. who was really interested in remembering her positively. She, Not that they it, wanted to remember her badly, they just... Didn't need She's to Anne hmm. from Arrested Development. Huh? <laughs> Egg. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Monica Sim has some hope for the future. I'm always struck <laughs> by how. Sh- <laughs> Sorry, it's just Egg. <laughs> I'm always struck by how shadowy and silent Anne Neville and Elizabeth of York are against the parade of larger-than-life women who preceded and followed them, particularly given they were both intimately embroiled in the head-spinning plot twists of both York and Lancaster over this period. Hard to accept that they were both so voiceless in a world of Margaret of Anjou, Cecily of York, Elizabeth Woodville, Margaret Beaufort, Catherine of Aragon, and strange that figures in such a pivotal position seem pawn-like and so biddable to the switching politics of their immediate families. Still, maybe there are caches of documents waiting to be found in attic somewhere that might help colour these two in. Yeah, imagine. It does happen. Exactly, it does happen. So you never know. You might get one Mm. or two sources that just uh, suddenly cast a new light. Hmm. She was, uh, she was a, f- a fan of the gin. <laughs> uh, so we mentioned that Anne Neville would be a good candidate for historical fiction, i.e. somebody who was at the centre of events, but we don't have an awful lot of information about mm. her. Uh, Michelle Wood agrees, uh, and m- many people pointed that out, saying, definitely one for historical fiction. Philippa Gregory, as ever, has done her, though I've oh, only no. seen the TV series and remember thinking how interesting her story was. Hmm. Uh, though this doesn't necessarily help, as uh, Jenny admitted, that uh, the trouble with Anne Neville is that even though I've read the entire Wars of the Roses series by Philippa Gregory, including the book about Anne, I always forget <laughs> she exists. It takes me a moment when she's mentioned to place her in history, and I'm always surprised I forgot about her. I feel bad because she had a rather sad life. But she's overshadowed by the ferocious Margaret of Anjou and the first commoner queen, Elizabeth Woodville. She's also overshadowed by her own husband's infamy. His reputation for the longest time was so dark that it's hard to wrap your head around the idea of him as a family man, which makes yeah. it easy to forget that he had a wife. Yeah. Very all 
exactly the reason that I struggle as well. But mm. she's just... I don't know if we've got a record of her saying anything would help. Finally, for our novel, uh, Fiona Skepper wants to give you some credit. Thanks. Dear Graham, I enjoyed the Anne Neville episode. One thing I wanted to raise was when discussing Anne Neville, Ali said maybe she should have had a book written about her like Emma if she wanted to be considered for the Rex Factor. I think Ali should be given uh, some points for an historical fact from some time ago he remembered without prompting. Um, did I get it wrong? Emma. No, no, that's right. Yep, Emma. Emma e- of Normandy. Emma of Normandy. Yeah, the encomium. Am I? What? Yeah, well done me. <laughs> well done you. You remembered a fact from earlier in the series, yeah. is what she's saying, basically. Surely good. Yeah. Emma, because definitely thought when you are saying a book and Emma, I thought it was one of those ones that the same old British cast always put out on film four or something. Uh, uh, oh, what, Jane Austen, Emma? Yeah, one of those things. And <laughs> Elizabeth of York. Now, we didn't give Elizabeth of York the Rex Factor, but a number of people have disagreed with us. Uh, Greg Moran made a prediction before listening. Such a key figure with so many connections to some of the most high-profile monarchs and historical moments. Where she came from, what she lived through and what followed her are all massive in Britain's history. A bit like Eleanor's time without the PR. My bet, Rex Factor. Oh dear. Disappointed customer. Yes, he didn't come back after listening. So And <laughs> <laughs> you'll never hear this. <laughs> Uh, Rebecca Whitman has listened and disagreed with us. I have to say straight away that I totally disagree with the decision not to give her the Rex Factor. Graham, you said it yourself. She's the white and the Tudor Rose. She had a better claim than Henry. She knew it. Henry knew it. Everyone knew it. And, if she wanted to, she could have pressed her own claim and continued the Wars of the Roses, but she chose peace. She chose Mm. to put the whole civil war behind her and marry the man whom she was raised to believe was a member of the family who were her greatest enemies. Yes, she was maybe a bit boring, but after 30 years of almost constant war, a bit boring is exactly what you'd want. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's a good point. They're all so eloquent, these Rex fans, aren't they? They could (laughs) sell me anything. I mean, I sort of counter to that, that although she has a better claim to the throne than Henry VII, it doesn't really feel like she or anyone was ever particularly pressing that well she's a boy without a winkle so it feels more like she was a useful dynastic accessory rather than Mm. a real power player in her own right there's no sense that there was ever a likelihood that she was going to raise an army yeah take on henry yeah never got the sense of that from her character Mm. it feels like she was always quite content to play the role that she did play which as you said is a good role to have played after what had been oh before. god yeah I think I mean if it was purposeful then absolutely right amazing and Drower points to the impact of her death as evidence of her significance uh, she says should have gotten it sometimes steady and competent with charm and grace is exactly the right person at the right time the change in Henry VII after her death shows how important she was to establishing the dynasty and pulling it all together I thought he deserved the Rex Factor too by the way no nah. <laughs> and oh yeah, the, they both did get it. That's they interesting. They both did get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another point of Henry VII, Jenny says, I thought Henry VII deserved the Rex Factor because, despite not necessarily being flashy, he achieved what three previous kings had failed to do and created a stable succession. It's clear in this episode that he couldn't have done it without his wife. He was the hard, steady, competent worker, and she was the charisma and charm he needed to see his efforts succeed. They both deserved the Rex Factor. 
I mean, maybe if they came as a package, we could... That'd be a good one. Do, do King and Queen together, do they get the Rex Factor? Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, maybe if they'd been a Henry and Elizabeth, like a William and Mary, mm. maybe the collective Henry and Elizabeth would have been the Rex Factor, but maybe, which isn't the argument Jenny was making, but mm. maybe neither of them on their own quite have enough yeah. to be the Rex Factor. So the combination of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York yeah, is the Rex Factor reign, but maybe they're both just lacking a little bit individually yep i think that's right and uh they just need each other to push they needed each other in life mm. well the modern uh really cute c- royals cute royals uh, you know when they need each other and they're all uh very much in love there was a oh i guess it's victoria now isn't it they needed each other in life mm. and uh it, without them that's well, good. Hmm. Uh, others do agree with us. Uh, Eliza Blanchard said, I thought Elizabeth York seemed like one of the best consorts the show had covered so far, but given how strong her claim to the throne was, she seemed like she could possibly have been in a position to push for a co-rule arrangement with Henry VII, or at least exerted more influence as a consort than she did. Given how tumultuous her early life was, uh, her early life was I certainly respect why she chose the more stable path, but mm. the smart, stable choice isn't particularly Rexy. Yeah. Subjectivity. You can make Rexy points in subjectivity, though. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth of Warwick agrees with us, though only on this decision. Uh, she says, just listen to Elizabeth of York podcast and agree with you that she didn't have the Rex factor. In fact, I agree with most of your results in the Queen Consort, except Philippa of Hainaut. I still think she was robbed. Which one was she? Edward III's consort. What did she, what did she do? Ah, oh, well, you see. Uh, she's queen for a long time, big happy families. Um, she, uh, there's the Burgess of Calais, where there's this famous thing where she persuades Edward to show mercy. Uh, and there was a very cool story about her riding on a white horse, giving uh, the speech before the Battle of Neville's Cross uh, which unfortunately transpired not to be true that was doesn't her, sound Rexy that was her big Rexy moment but it was a made up story unfortunately and we didn't give it to her no I'll stick with that <laughs> uh, Farida Shibaji uh, has some thoughts on Perkin Warbeck and what his presence at court does or does not suggest in terms of whether or not he really was uh, Elizabeth of York's brother, i.e. one of the mm. princes in the towers. She says, Come on, guys. Having a non-noble who rebelled against you and may, or not, and may or may not be the rightful king in your court and his wife as a queen's lady does not scream to me, look at this, we aren't worried. Especially with Edward Earl of Warwick sitting in the tower. It seems far more plausible that this was a let's have him at court while we work up the courage to execute him when it's obviously rather immoral if he was indeed who he said he was. And what could Elizabeth of York say? At this point, she is married, a queen with children in line for the throne. Even if she had said something, Tudor propaganda would have wiped that right off the record. If she had had said it is my brother? If she said, goodness me, that's my brother. He should be the king, shouldn't he? And people, no, 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 no. Don't don't write that down. Okay. So it wasn't... I still think that if it was him, they would have just done him in straight away. Mm. rather than parade him for a while around court wait for him to meet him 
Yeah, wait for him to build an army and then kill him in open battle so it's fair. They just kill him. It's mm. the same. Yeah, and I did also think in terms of the um, Tudor propaganda thing that there are also foreign people at embassies at court and if she just slightly startled or even mm. just gasped yeah. in front of an ambassador, that would have been written down and sent back home. Yeah. 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 Wasn't him, was it? Or maybe it's a uh, a classic old school sitcom episode where Henry the Seventh has to try and make sure that she never. Oh yes, wouldn't that be brilliant? Oh, that'd be amazing. I'm surprised they didn't do that for um, it's around series one of Blackadder. <laughs> uh, now we mentioned how Elizabeth of York is part of that uh, combo of the only mother daughter uh, partnership to both be queen consorts of England. Um, mm. Aaron Brooks has pointed out that there is precedent for this in France, however. All right. Another queen consort whose daughter became queen con- who became queen consort of the same country was Marie Therese in 1830 in France. She was the daughter of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette and the husband of the Dauphin, very briefly reigning uh, as Louis Nineteenth. Uh, brief because he was only king for about 20 minutes after his father, Charles X, had abdicated to Louis, who then abdicated to his nephew Henri V. That's three kings in an hour because Charles and Louis were unpopular and hoping to save the throne by giving it to the ten-year-old Henri during the July Revolution. Sandwiched in, though, was Marie-Therese, the 20-minute queen and daughter of the last queen. That really happened qu- quickly, like that? Hmm. Huh. BBC News alerts would have been going absolutely crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't uh, really understand how that happened. I think it's just... It's it's more of a the king is not the king. Long live the next guy who's the king. Oh no, he's also said he's not going to be the king. Right, it's going to pass to this guy. Oh, they weren't just being killed. As no, they, no, as they're passing the crown around. No, it wasn't this sort of gruesome execution squad where they okay. went to the effort of crowning them first. <laughs> the, no, that's the weapon. That's how they do it. It's got some sort of like <laughs> upside, cigar cutter in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Louise Brimacom again has pointed out this actually happened a number of times in France. So she says, Charlotte of Savoy married Louis XI and their daughter Joan married the future Louis XII. Anne of Brittany married Louis XII and their daughter Claude of France or stroke Brittany married Francis I. Catherine oh, de Medici God. married Henry II and their daughter Margaret married the future Henry IV. It's much more likely under Salic law. In England, if the king and queen have daughters but no sons, or run out of sons, then the throne should go to the eldest daughter, unless the Henry VII type turns up to disrupt things. In France, such daughters are excluded from the succession but will be important for dynastic marriages. Salic law also increases the chance of the throne passing to a very distant relative, which makes it more acceptable for the daughter of one king to marry a later king. So basically, if the king dies and he doesn't have any sons, and then it ends up having to be his third cousin is the next appropriate male, mm. then actually for the previous king's daughter to marry the third cousin isn't actually it's such not, a... Okay. It's yeah. not like marrying his brother or something like that. Okay. Righto. So it happens more often in France because of the way that they do things. Well, it's good. I mean, it was bound <laughs> to be that way around, wasn't it? <laughs> I just love the way they think uh, and finally Simon and Jess have a little bit of extra info uh, f- for an episode in uh, well Elizabeth's episode <laughs> oh. 
Um, we mentioned how there was an episode where an episode, I keep saying the word episode now, uh, where she stands up against a request from the Pope to uh, put a certain person in the church appointment. Yeah. And she's asked to stand aside her candidate, and she says no. Mm. Uh, so Simon had just said that Pope she stood up to, Alexander the Sixth, was the infamous Rodrigo Borgia uh, of the Borgias uh, TV uh, series fame. Not one for the faint-hearted. Not one for the Rex Factor, though, either. I don't know who he is. Was he a baddie? Uh, yeah, so, that's quite, so the Borgia family, the sort of notorious uh, Italian... Italian? It must be Italian. Uh, family. Yeah. yeah. Um, with all their various power shenanigans, and he is the kind of the... Well, literally the daddy, because lots of the yeah. other Borgias are his children, despite the fact that he's, I mean, you know, Pope. let's be honest, literally the godfather. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty pleased with that. <laughs> Correspondence Corner. So that was our Right to Reply episode on the Yorkist Queens. Let us know if you enjoyed this episode and if you've got any further thoughts or questions on these queens. As I said, we will uh, still deal with those in due course, even though we've done the Right to Reply episode. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram where we are at, at Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page where Ali is once again active. Or Back email Podcast at hotmail.com. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use, although actually not all of them allow you to leave reviews, do they? So, But if your one does, oh, right. please do. Uh, or you can donate to us on a monthly basis and join the Privy Council and get access to nearly 150 bonus podcasts at www.patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. Lovely. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Ron Littlejohn. Catherine Wayhill. Now, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Weighill, W-E-I-G-H-I-L-L. Weighill? So it'd be Weighill or Weigel. Weigel. Weigel, yeah. Well, you, whichever way around, she's had it a number of times. <laughs> uh, Becky Harnett, <laughs> B.C. Durant, Stephanie Wiseman, Charles Cooper, Luke Burrows, Alexander Ward, Laura Kay, Catherine Lloyd, Christina Richards, Stephanie Peters, Amy Williams, Alan Cook, Michael W.D., Kathy Fleming, Siv Heimdall, Sam Grant, Daniel Charlton, Rachel, Rachel Jaffe, those are two different Rachels, but I don't have a surname for the first one, Suzanne Dernay, Jeremy Hoffman, William Tomlinson, and Michael McNeil. Hey, uh, Jeremy Hoffman's a familiar name. There's a few in there, that's nice. Indeed. Hello. Uh, and uh, we have a few messages to read out from long ago new Privy Councillors. This is back in the days when Podbean uh, had uh, a reward for a message to be read out on the podcast. We're still fulfilling Are we really? that pledge. Have I told you how this is just like purple hearts that the Americans had produced for the invasion of mainland Japan? <laughs> they're, they're still getting through them in the Gulf War. <laughs> After Vietnam and everything. <laughs> First up, Eamon O'Reilly. Yours is the only podcast I've ever listened to, having been encouraged to listen by long-term fan... Oh, no. <laughs> it's the person whose name we always pronounce wrong. <laughs> Shoinin McCoy, as well as Emma Sutton. And it has kept me sane throughout furlough. 
Growing up in Northern Ireland, I'd been sour to studying British history because everyone was so obsessed with it and the strife this caused. So at university, I studied ancient history instead. But by the holy face of Luca, you have managed to rekindle my interest. Great work, guys. Keep it up. Oh, man. Well, I mean, sorry to drag you away from ancient history because that's good stuff. Mm. Uh, Taylor you know, says... Welcome. <laughs> good work. <welcome. laughs> Taylor says, hey guys, been listening since 2017, started with the William Wallace episode and have been hooked ever since. I'm actually a grad student in uh, med English medieval history. As such, I have just one thing to say. Edward III should have won season one. By far a better king and man than even Edward I. Mm, well, she's lost me isn't it? As, a, as an ally in this argument. And Henry VIII <laughs> doesn't even bear mentioning. Well, yeah, quite. Uh, yeah, he was good. <laughs> anyway, keep up the excellent work. And if you read this out, two things must be said. Dunstan is a fun sponge, and Edgar mm. did not deserve the Rex Factor. She's back. I like the cut of this lady's jib. Also, if you'd like to mention my name, it is Taylor Niffer. You do pronounce the K, so it's K-N-I-P-H-F-E-R, but you only pronounce one of the F sounds. She's making this up. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It is so confusing. Well, I'm going to... Uh, I'll give it a go. Was it? So K-N-I-P-H-F-E-R. You do pronounce the K. Yeah. But you only pronounce one of the F sounds. I thought there was only one. Well, there's a P-H and an F. Kniffer. You only pronounce one of them. Kniffer. 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 What a fun name. <laughs> it's really nice to say, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and finally, Alex Rodka. I've been listening for years and it is always a lovely surprise when a Rexico drops into my podcast feed. Keep up the good work. Cheers, ma'am. Will do. Uh, so that is all from us today. We're moving into a run of interviews now, all of which are uh, very pertinent to the Yorkist episodes we've just done. So first up, we'll be speaking to Matt Lewis, chairman of the Richard III Society. My friend. Mm. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from us. Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs>